Let's continue our journey through 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. What we're learning is that the culture and world at Corinth had creeped into the church. And every time that happened, that posed a problem. Whether it was the philosophy of the people of that day, whether it was the Jews' culture who thought it as a stumbling block to think that God could die or that he could be a curse on a cross for us. And the Greeks thought it foolishness to the very concept that, that Jesus would come in the flesh and then die for our sins. The culture of Corinth creeped in in idolatry and in and, and, and towing that line and the way that they treated one another, how they loved one another was, was lacking. The divisions, the pitting of men above one above another and the way they viewed one orator over another. Greek philosophy was creeping into the church at Corinth. Every time that happened, it posed a problem. And now what's happening is there is this belief in the Corinthian culture concerning a resurrection that it, they didn't believe it would happen. And so that's creeped in. And so Paul is now dealing with that. Here's the interesting concept, though, is that they accepted that Jesus had died, he was buried, and he rose again, but they were not, some among them were not believing that they themselves would rise from the dead. Those are two contradictory beliefs, as he will point out. Notice as we read, beginning in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren... I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now first off, what we see here is the foundation of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. These are the things that the Old Testament passages had foretold of. These are what Jesus said he would do according to the scriptures. And then after he rose, he showed them that what Moses spoke of, what the Psalms spoke of, what the prophets spoke of concerning his death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel, the good news of salvation is more than the death, burial, and resurrection, but the death, burial, and resurrection is the foundation of it. And we must believe that. And that's why he's drawing their attention because I think they already believed in that, but they're, some of them towing the line with this Corinthian idea of their day about no resurrection of themselves contradicts that. When you think about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, when he, notice how he's, I, I really believe it's the foundation because when he says, I declare unto you first of all. Well, first here doesn't mean first in order chronologically. He means first in importance. Actually, some of your translations may say that, first in importance. It's very important that we get this concept and that we believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. You know what you believe is very important. Some people think it doesn't matter what you believe. You believe this, I believe that, it's okay. No. What you believe is so crucial, because what you believe affects your living. 
What you think, what you believe, makes a difference in how you live. It makes a difference in how much faith you have, where you stand. Okay? Now, also, he says in verse 1, wherein you stand, that's the foundation you stand upon. If you stop believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, what's going to happen whenever you're facing the prospect of your physical trials? Well, when you look at the trials Jesus went through, well, why did he do that? And why did he do that? If Jesus was willing to undergo the type of treatment that he received, there's something about that that tells you that was more important to him, something he was very passionate about, something he believed in, that he treasured, that he was willing to undergo such treatment. If you get this, you have to know that you have a purpose in Him if you have died in Him, if you've been buried in Him, and if you've been raised in Him. You've got a reason to live. You've got a reason to put off the old man. You've got a reason to stop doing the things that fulfill our flesh that caused Him to be on the cross to begin with. You have a reason to abstain from every fleshly lust that wars against your soul. You do not want Jesus' death to be for nothing. So you have a reason to live in the way you should. Every time you are tempted as a Christian, you need to remember that. I don't want his death to be for nothing. When Peter had denied the Lord and then the Lord looked upon him and he felt horrible and he went away and wept. Every time you face any temptation, any weakness that you're dealing with, you stop and you think, and then you imagine the Lord's looking at me. I don't want him to be disappointed. I want the Lord to be pleased. As his father was of him when he said that. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. I want the Lord to be pleased with me. Let that be your motivation. When Jesus was willing to endure the trials of sinners before the, the, what he was to gain, which was your soul, you need to have that aim and that goal. Keep your eyes fixed on the goal and that's being with our Lord. Don't look at the lure of sin and give in. Remain steadfast. Remain strong. And yes, you can turn away from sin. There's no temptation that you have faced that is not any different than what other people have faced. It's common to man. You need to recognize that. And you need to resist the temptation. This is all the motivation we should ever need. Whenever you're facing some difficulty in life and you wonder, you know, facing loss of some kind, you need to remember what Jesus went through for you. There is a reason and a purpose for that. Stop moping. Stop keeping your head down in the sand. Lift your eyes up. Look to the Lord. Live for Him. There's no reason why we should be discouraged. I, I know it happens to us, but whenever we feel that way, that's normal for us to do that. But when, every time you, 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 you experience that, you need to think about the cross. You need to think about what Jesus did. And when you think about loss, you need to understand that loss is temporary for a Christian. Because he didn't stay in the grave. He arose. 
Yes, it matters what you believe. And you need to continue to believe. And if you only believe while things are going well, then you've forgotten the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus suffered in the cross. Jesus suffered before the cross, leading up to it. In the garden, he suffered in agony. Why did he do that? You know, see, this is the message of salvation we need to keep before us. Don't ever stop believing. When you think about Jesus dying according to the Scriptures, you know, you know think about this. Some people thought that Jesus was going to come and be this physical conquering king. They missed that. that that's not why he came. Isaiah 53 pictured him not like that, but as a suffering servant. That's totally different. That's totally upside down to what, what most people think of. He came despised and rejected of men, acquainted with grief. That's how he came. As a suffering servant, as a sheep led to the slaughter, mute before his shearers. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He could have, but he didn't. Why? Because of the goal of making atonement for your sins. The idea of a suffering servant as a king, the Son of God suffering. Sometimes people think that if you let people hurt you, that somehow you're weaker. Absolutely not true. The strongest ever, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of this earth who has all power and all authority, let his creation that he made beat him, ridicule him, insult him, pierce him, and he suffered at their hands, not because he was weak, but because he was strong enough to stay on the cross. That's why, that's the kind of king that we serve. Yes, he died. And the, the prophet spoke of this. You know, he was scourged. He was beaten. That scourging in and of itself was a gruesome thing, physically and mentally, to be treated that way. Such an act of cruelty and insulting. Wouldn't that not have been hurtful? That you made these people, you're loving these people, you're dying for these people, while they treat you so cruelly and spit on you. And in John 19, 34, we see that, yes, absolutely he died. After the scourging, sometimes people died when they were crucified. Before the crucifixion, they would die of just the scourging itself. So that was a, a big thing, okay? Then... After he was on the cross, they came by to break legs of, of the men so that it would speed up the process. When they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. When they pierced him in his side and blood and water came out. Do you know the Old Testament passages talk about that? That he would be poured out like water from Psalm 22? And yes... And Isaiah 53, 8, he was cut off out of the land of the living. So yes, the prophets, the scriptures, 
spoke that he would die. Jesus said himself that he would die. It's like they didn't get it. But it was foretold of. Even secular sources admit that Jesus of Nazareth lived and died and was buried. That is historical fact. Sometimes there are some atheists who will say, well, there, he was, didn't even live. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. Most people, historians, cannot deny. You, know, they, you cannot deny that there are even sources outside of Scripture who, who show that there was a man in Nazareth named Jesus who died. He was buried. In Genesis 3.15, when you talk about the Scriptures, it goes back from the very beginning. The Scriptures said that the seed of the woman would have enmity or be enemies with Satan. That Satan would bruise his heel and he would bruise Satan's head. What was that talking about? Jesus was bruised. There was a mortal blow when, when Satan bit his heel. Yes, he died. But Jesus triumphed over Satan. A, a more powerful blow to the head of Satan and triumphing over him. The grave didn't keep him. But Isaiah 53, 9 tells us that he would make his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. Prophecies tell about that. Well, what happened in Matthew 27, verses 57 to 60, what we see is, is that there was a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man. He went and begged the body of uh, Jesus from Pilate, laid him in his own tomb, new tomb. A rich man had bought this property and had Jesus buried on it. That's what the prophets had spoken of. That he died, he was buried, and he rose again according to the scriptures. Psalm 16.10 tells us, You will not leave my soul in hell, nor allow your, your Holy One to see corruption. Well, Jesus did not stay in the grave long enough for his body to decay. But yet the prophet spoke that he would rise from the dead. So according to the scriptures, both the all the death, burial, and resurrection were foretold of. I've just named a few. So yes, that's foundational. But I want to mention this to you. There's a man by the name of Wilbur Smith who wrote a book called Therefore Stand. I'd like to just read to you what he said because I think it's powerful. He says, We know more about the burial of the Lord Jesus than we know of the burial of any single character in all of the ancient history. We know who took his body from the cross. We know something of the wrapping of the body in spices and burial clothes. We know the very tomb in which this body was placed, the name of the man who owned it. We know even where this tomb was located, in a garden, night of the place where he was crucified, outside the city walls. We know minute details concerning events immediately subsequent to our Lord's entombment. He goes on to say, In fact, we know more about what happened and what was said during the last week of His life on earth than we know about any other entire year of His life on earth. We know that He said to His disciples throughout Thursday of that week, the institution of the Lord's Supper that night, the agony of suffering in Gethsemane, the nature of the crowd that came out to arrest Him, and how he was betrayed with a kiss. 
We know the five trials which Jesus underwent within the last eight hours. We know what men said to Christ, what they said against Christ, and what he said to them. We know how the soldiers despitefully used him, how the Sanhedrin bribed witnesses to condemn him. We know even the name of the obscure person who carried his cross. Nothing here is that we might call mythical or even theological. It is all solid, definite, historical fact. He goes on to say, The places of uh, geographical definiteness. The man who owned the tomb was a man living in the first half of the first century. That tomb was made out of rock in a hillside near Jerusalem and was not composed of some mythological gossamer or cloud dust. The guards put before that tomb were not aerial beings from Mount Olympus. The Sanhedrin was a body of men meeting frequently in Jerusalem. As a vast mass of literature tells us, this person, Jesus, was a living person, a man among men, whatever else he was, and the disciples who went out to preach the risen Lord were men among men, men who ate, drank, slept, suffered, worked, and died. Yes, no wonder Luke tells us that he was raised by many infallible proofs. There are so many evidences of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I can't talk about all of them in one lesson. So talk to us after if you want more. But that is what Paul is dealing with. They believed that, though. They believed in the death, burial, and resurrection. Paul is reminding them of that. But some of them were saying that they themselves were not going to be raised. So in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15, he reminds them of the witnesses who saw Jesus after his resurrection, that he was seen of Cephas, that'd be Peter. Sometimes he's called Simon Peter. Sometimes he's called Simon, surnamed Peter. But Jesus said he named him Cephas, which was interpreted stone. So Simon, Peter, Cephas, same man. Verse 6, After that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Paul wrote this about 25 years after Jesus rose from the grave. So even 25 years later, there was some of those who were... Most of them who had saw him were still living. And here, 500 had saw him, besides the apostles, who were special witnesses of his resurrection. But then verse 7, after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. This is Paul referring to himself as one born out of due time. Now, the reason why he's saying that, he's, he's an apostle. But the requirement of, to be an apostle from Acts 1, when Judas betrayed Jesus, they were looking for an apostle to take his place. And they stated in Acts 1, we need to find somebody who has been with us from the baptism of John up until the time Jesus was taken away. That's one who would be qualified to be a witness because they'd been with him. They'd been through that whole length of time of his ministry. They got to see him go up into heaven. Paul didn't exactly fit that description because he wasn't with them the whole time. So he's like an ill-timed birth. Okay. 
That's, that's why he's describing himself that way. He does meet the requirement that he saw the Lord, though. He was persecuting Christians on the way to Damascus. He sees the Lord. And he makes that point in, in 1 Corinthians 9, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? So he meets the requirement of seeing Jesus. He just didn't meet the other uh, normal circumstances of being with him the whole time of his ministry. That's why he refers to himself as one born out of due time. And then verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Here recognizing his own faults. Paul did not think of himself as the greatest of apostles because he wrote more scripture. Paul thought of himself as the lowest of the apostles. But he viewed it as an act of grace that the Lord allowed him to work in this way. He didn't let his head swell as it would be tempting for a lot of us to do, to think, well, look at me, look at what the Lord has elevated me to. But Paul understood the message of the cross. And he especially understood it in relation to himself. And what he's really saying is, if I can be saved, who have persecuted the church and have done the things that I've done, if I can be saved, anybody can be saved. This is leaving a pattern for anybody else. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, the Lord will never forgive me. I'll never amount to much. You need to look at the example of the Apostle Paul. Who would have ever thought that Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, the one who thought Jesus was a blasphemer, who was on the mission to eradicate all believers in Christ, who would have ever thought someone so entrenched and so on a mission to do that, would ever convert and then be one of the greatest followers of Christ. But verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. What he's saying here is, I don't take the grace that was given to me and become lazy with it and think it means that it gives me a license to live however I want to. It motivates me to want to live for him. And so that made Paul a harder worker than the rest of the apostles. And verse 11, Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Ultimately, it doesn't matter who says it, but that the gospel is preached and that people believe and are saved. Verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. What he's really saying here is look at, look at the impact that it would mean if we don't raise from the dead. Some people think that you only have this life, then you're dead, and then you die, you cease to exist. 
How, look, look at the impact of that. First off, it makes the apostles liars. It makes that Jesus himself must not have raised from the dead because that's what it's based upon, that we will raise from the dead because he did. And if he hasn't risen, then we're still in our sins. And we're believing for nothing. And if we only have that belief in this life, why are we being persecuted? What a miserable and pitiable existence. If, if that's what it is to be a Christian, you, if, if this life is all there is, how short-sighted would that be? Think about that. To be ridiculed, mocked, called names. What a bleak existence. No wonder that when uh, the preacher in Ecclesiastes said concerning life under the sun that it would be considered empty if you leave God out of it. You live and you die, we all die, and that's it. You, you work hard and then you die. How, how sad of an existence is that? But I believe there's a life beyond this one. And because I believe there's a life beyond this one, if I suffer in this life, it's, it's temporary. I've got something else to look forward to. I've got a reason to die for Him. I don't have to fear death like the rest of the world. You see how powerful it is to believe in the resurrection and what that should do for us? Verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Again, first fruits doesn't mean first in order. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Other people have been raised from the dead. Okay. He doesn't mean first in order, but first fruits is in the first in importance. There is a harvest of souls. Jesus is chief among that. Then we, whenever he comes back, verse 21, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, but even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Now here I don't believe he's talking about spiritual death. I know that when God said in the garden, in the day you eat of the tree of, in the middle of the garden, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And I believe when they ate, they died spiritually when they were driven from the garden. But I believe physical death began because they didn't have right to the tree of life because that was in the garden they weren't in the garden. We are all going to die physically because of that man's sin. Now, we all die spiritually because of our own sin. Okay, so don't get confused on that. But we're all going to die because sin entered the world. Sin is the reason of the cause of physical death. But Jesus is the reason that we're all going to be raised, good and bad. Everybody's going to be raised, regardless. And when he says each man in his own order, sometimes people think that means one at a time, as in like as soon as you die, that's, that's it. Then you're raised at that point. I think his point is, here's the order, each man in his own order. One man is Jesus. When he died, he was raised. Everybody else when he comes back. And I think that's what he says here. 
But then verse 24, Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And here he's quoting Psalm 110. And you really need to go back and read Psalm 110 which is a message about the rule and reign of Christ as priest and king after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, that he is on his throne. He's going to rule in the midst of his enemies until the last enemy is destroyed. He is ruling and he's going to rule until death is cast into the lake of fire. That, when that occurs, he's not going to set up his kingdom as some think. He's going to deliver it up, as he says in verse 24. There will be a day when death will come to an end. If you are discouraged by death taking loved ones, take some comfort in the fact there will be a day when that will happen no more as a Christian. That's a comforting thought to me. Verse 27, For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted that which did put all things under him. He is in power, and he is reigning. Verse 28, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in and all. Won't you be subject to him today? Won't you choose to kneel at the cross, kneel before the King, Give Him your life. Believe in Him that He's the Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess you believe that He's Lord. Knowing that He died for you. And you want to be buried in His death by baptism and then raised to walk in newness of life. Live faithful unto death. And He'll give you a crown of life. And if you're a Christian, don't lose sight of that. If you've messed up or you need help because of some sin or, or whatever other need, this is the time that you can ask for that. You can come to the front. Give us your hand while we stand and as we sing.